Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for swinging by and hanging out with us again today on Conversations. What a great show we have. I've been talking for almost an hour with this guy. We haven't even started recording yet. I am so excited that he's here, that he's here to hang out with. He's a publisher. He's a producer. He's a host. He picks guitar. He's an all-around good guy. He certainly puts the word bull into bulldog. I can tell you that much right now. Southeast Produce Weekly, and he's the host of RFD TV's Where the Food Comes From. Give it up for my brother from another mother, Chip Carter. Welcome, Chip. Hey, Todd. Thanks for having me on. You know, it's it is funny. absolutely you, a pleasure. People don't usually get the peek behind the scenes, but you told them we already talked an hour before you pressed record. So, no. uh, yeah, they should have heard that. Well, they probably should have heard the first hour. I, they probably because we were everywhere in the first hour. It was the funny. I, I tell you, we looked up. We both looked up at each other like we've been talking for an hour. We haven't. Yeah, even maybe, we should, great. maybe we should. Maybe we should. Maybe we should hit record and start getting some well, of this. Ex- exactly. Exactly. But we probably already but, used our good stuff now, Todd. So it's. I know I wrote some good stuff though. We're good. We'll get okay, back to it. Right, okay, I think we're okay, good. Okay. Yeah, I think we're good. I, I think yeah, there's we'll more in the more. tank. There's more we'll in the tank. We'll, well, like I told you, I told you, I'm as fired up as a one-eyed <laughs> rat staring at two holes right now. So I'm excited for this conversation. There's no two ways about it. You know, before we get started, I'm just going to throw it out there. Just tell everybody real quick. I don't want to read your bio because it sounds so campy when I do it. Tell it from your heart. You know, just tell everybody who you are and a little bit of your journey. And then I got 157,911 questions I want to throw at you. And I've got that many answers. So thank, I'm thank just, God. I'm a preacher's kid from the country. I was born in Georgia and I grew up in Georgia a little while in Texas, but everywhere we were was just little farm towns. Uh, I remember I was seven years old the first time I got in a cab of an air conditioned tractor and it was out in the wow. West Texas panhandle. I didn't ever want to get out of there. So these were the people I knew. This was the life I knew. This is my family. Uh, all of my grandparents and their parents had been in farming on my dad's side. They were gentlemen farmers, which they paid other people to do the work while they watched. And my mom's side was sharecroppers. And, you know, my, my granddad had land and I mean, my great granddad had land. My granddad worked for him and it was just handed down generationally. And then things that that we don't even think about now that drove people out of farming, there was no protections, there was no offsets, but there was something called the boll weevil. And if you were a cotton farmer in Georgia in the 30s and 40s and 50s, that was was a very bad thing to see coming. And the boll weevil eventually ran my my mother's family out of farming. Uh, So we, you know, I've got a couple of nephews who are, poking around at it but but the, mm-hmm. the the carters got ran out of farming uh so that that changed my world and also as that small town kid you know i packed peaches i i sprayed cane i cut cane i bailed hay we did all those things i did enough of that to know by the time i was 18 years old all i wanted was out i just wanted to get out of yeah. the country and i knew i wanted to tell stories I knew there was something calling me. Uh, I didn't know if it was going to be a TV or a newspaper or a guitar or what it was going to be, but I knew that that's just what I did. What are you doing? People ask me all the time, what do you do? I say, I'm a storyteller. Yeah, that's it. I'll pick a different medium. Uh, anything but visual arts, because I can't even draw a conclusion. So, so, but other than that, it's, you know, it's in my wheelhouse and I just started trying to figure out how to use it. Uh, and I did what, you know, a lot of people do. Most people do. I went the big city route. Uh, I got into the mainstream media. I started 
uh, working for newspapers. By the time before I was 30, I became one of the youngest syndicated, internationally syndicated columnists in history. I signed on with the Chicago Tribune to write about video games, which I know will make a lot of people who know me go, what? Yeah. <laughs> but there was no national mainstream media presence about video games. It was just something that was considered kid stuff. And Nintendo was something that your that your grandkids played or your kids played. You know, it couldn't be serious. It couldn't be a real thing. But I saw then in the early 90s that gaming would come to be the predominant entertainment media, at least especially in terms of, of dollars generated. And that happened 20 years ago, that switch yeah. happened. So <clears throat> I, I walked those roads also. I wrote a column for the Washington Post for a couple of years. But early on, I had seen the writing on the wall for, for newspapers. And I knew it wasn't good. I'd been an early beta tester uh, for Apple on the first online community. It was actually before AOL. It was called eWorld. And the first time, this was like 94. Mm-hmm. And they sent me a Mac. And the first time I signed on a computer and there were other people there, I knew the world had changed. <clears throat> and I knew that what we were looking at was the entire entertainment spectrum, newspaper, television, radio, all was going to be rolled into this one first box that we had on our desk. And then little thing we put in a briefcase and carried with us and now in the palm of our hand. Yeah, you're back talking. So I saw I saw that newspapers did not have a role in that. So I started cultivating these other sides and these other areas where I walked. Uh, I went and joined AOL, uh, uh, started writing and producing for several of their properties, including Huffington Post, which people still sometimes raise their eyes and go, you were right for the Huffington Post. I don't anymore, but I did. Uh, and, and they're like, why would you do that? That makes you a little suspect. I'm kind of. Yeah, they got three million readers a month. Those checks I'm trying to get I'm trying to get messages to people. I'm not yeah. I'm not I don't care what your political affiliation is. I don't care. Uh I learned from my, my father, the minister. Ain't no point in preaching to the choir. Those folks are already there. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. You know, you gotta spread the word. You got to sure. do a little evangelizing. You got to do a little proselytizing. You got to get out in the country and show them where it's at. Um, I love it. And, and for me, where it was at for a long time was video games. And that let me raise a family and and be home with the kids and travel with the kids. We went all over the world. It was just, it was fantastic. And then, you, you know, it was all kind of starting to, to peter down. And uh, I felt as much fun as I had had with video games. I felt the need for something more meaningful in my life, uh, something more meaningful to do with whatever skills that, that I have. And uh, I, I started looking around. I've always been fascinated by farming. I didn't leave the country and farming because I hated it. I left because I couldn't stay in small towns and do the things that I wanted to do. And that's, sure. that's a big problem in rural America today, that rural divide. We lose so much of our talent from the small towns because there's simply no opportunity there. So I went yeah. off and had my big city media career. And then, you know, I think it was about 2005. Well, I had moved to Florida several years before that. And part of the reason why was I wanted the kids to be able to see, look, there's 
food growing on that tree. There's sure. strawberries coming out of the ground. But look, we play soccer in an orange grove. You know, isn't this cool? And they always thought so. <clears throat> and by the time they were about 15, I think my son came home one day from school. And uh, I said, you want a Coke? He says, uh, no, thanks, Dad. And I'm like, why not? It's delicious. He said, well, it, it's got this high fructose corn syrup. And I said, yeah, it's delicious. <laughs> it's good. It's good. <laughs> What's your problem? What's wrong with you? I raised you better than that. <clears throat> you from Georgia, boy. But <laughs> he says, Dad, he says, your body, he said that your body doesn't recognize that. It doesn't know what it is. It doesn't know how to process it. I'm like, huh, number one, that's fascinating. Number two, 15-year-old kids are talking about this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I started listening. One thing I always did when I was young is I sought out the company of older people mm -hmm. and I listened to them and I paid attention to what they were saying. As that started to flip, I started to be on the older end of the spectrum. <clears throat> I continued and I still continue to seek out the counsel of younger people and I listen to them and I pay attention to what they're saying. So yeah. my kids, it was our kids' generation that told me this. Uh, just listening to them, all of a sudden, they were very interested. My mm -hmm. kids were mo more closely connected than most because of my roots. Uh, you, you know, we never got, like so many families now, three and four and five generations from the farm. We never had that kind of disconnect. Now, mm -hmm. my kids never did any farm work, <laughs> but their daddy sure did. So, <laughs> Yeah, you know, to to look up and see that kind of groundswell and know that that was coming, uh, I started thinking. I said, "I really, I want to angle to be in the food space. I think there's something calling me there. I think me. there's, I think there's something here, um, and I think it's going to be a big deal. And I think it's actually going to be sea change. It's not going to be a fad. It's not going to be oh, this is hip for a minute." This is going to be generational change, and that's exactly what we've seen. Hi, I'm Nate Hefty, Vice President of Sales at Superior Fresh, the nation's largest aquaponic farm located in central Wisconsin. Thank you for listening to Toddversations and Toddbits. Check us out at www.superiorfresh.com to learn how we raise our Atlantic salmon on a non-GMO organic diet. And they thrive in water naturally filtered by our USDA-certified organic leafy greens never treated with hormones, antibiotics, or pesticides, and packed with two times the omega-3s. This is salmon as it should be. Shop with us online and use the discount code TLC2022 to receive free shipping on all of our American Heart Association's Heart Health Checked Atlantic Salmon. At Superior Fresh, we are changing how food is grown to change the world. Remember the code TLC2022 to get free shipping. By 2009, I was ready to make the move. And I went uh, went to work with one of the uh, produce trade publications. Anybody who knows me knows which one. So, uh, and they brought me on just to cover Florida. And I honestly came into it. I said, you know, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this for six months, and I'm gonna see where it goes, and I'm gonna see if there's anything to this. And it was about six weeks, Todd, and I was on my way home from another farm. Now, I had not been back and set foot on a farm technically probably since I left the country, even though the, the kids had been in groves and strawberry fields and everything. We weren't hanging out on commercial farms and things sure. like that. Um, <clears throat> so it had been a minute. It had been a while. 
had not lost touch with all the people because my dad, right up until the very end of his life, was a, a Methodist circuit rider minister. He had four little country churches, and the, the biggest congregation was 30, and the smallest one was three. So he'd preach it two of those on one Sunday morning to the next Sunday morning. So whenever I was in Georgia, I was still going and seeing dance. I had not lost touch with the people, but what they did, I had completely lost touch with. And Unbelievable. I, I was about six weeks. I was on the way home from another visit to a farm, and I called my mom. I said, Mom, I remember where they left the good people. And I think yeah. at that moment, I knew I was going to be here. And then just very shortly, Todd, to be able to see where farming was when I left it at 18 or 19 and where it had gone, the people were all the same, but the way they do what they do was just dramatically changed. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was just, you know, <laughs> jet age kind of stuff. And, sure. uh, and it was just fascinating. And I knew I already had the idea for a TV show in mind, even then. I've got the the first script treatment for what became where the food comes from is in my files dated 2009, but I got in the industry and I realized in a hurry, I didn't know enough about this to come out and speak about it authoritatively. I had no business coming out as, as a subject matter expert on a subject that I thought I knew a lot about and turns out I did not know anything about. So I spent the next few years learning and traveling and if they said go, I went. I started out to cover Florida. Next thing you know, I was in Florida and Georgia. Next thing you know, I looked up. I'd been named Southeastern editor. I didn't even know it. I read it in the paper. So, <laughs> and then uh, they started asking, "Do you want to go to Texas? Do you want to go to Philadelphia? Do you want to go up and down the ports of the Delaware River and see what's going on there?" Yes, 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 and yes. Do you want to go to Canada and look at the industry there? Absolutely. Come on out to California, IA. I hear it's nice this time of year. Uh, so uh, I went. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about going for a visit for a day or two. I'm talking about going and landing somewhere and being three weeks in the Rio Grande Valley and every day tromping through more fields and a different grove and here and driving through deserts and dodging drug smugglers and <laughs> everybody else. Uh, <clears throat> this is not. I knew this was not the kind of thing that I could do from behind a desk. Sure. I could sure. not sit in this room and call people on the phone and say, tell me what's going on out there. I knew I had to get out there and get my toes in the dirt and, and get my nose in the dirt and uh, get down there and sweat with everybody else. Um, and after six years of that, I felt I finally learned enough. People started referring to me as a agricultural authority. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, maybe <laughs> fooled somebody. <laughs> so that's when I started CBC3 Media, which is the parent company that launched Southeast Produce Weekly, which right. was designed really to serve the Southeastern trade, just serve the whole trade, but to tell the news and the stories of the Southeast. Uh, I knew then that that was just part of what we were going to be doing. And my bigger goal was to get this television show on the air and to have the consumer facing website where the food comes from, which is now live. And yeah. the uh, show premiered on RFD TV January 20th. We're on every Thursday at 9.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern. There's a couple of other airings every week. Like they say, check your local listings. 
So that's kind of how it all all came. I love it to this point. So that was I love a very it. I long love answer, Todd. No, no, it's answer. it's actually great because it, it, it <laughs> there's there's a bunch that I want to ask you about the story you just told because I think there's some really cool things. You know, I want to go back to to being you know, the, the, the son of a small town Georgia preacher, you know, going around from a congregation of 30 down to three and, and you know, bounce like he did learning that because there's some life lessons that you learned as a kid that probably didn't manifest themselves into reality until you got out of that zip code. So can you, you know, and I think it's really worthy when you, when you think about, you know, and, and we, we chatted about this before, you know, I'm a big believer. We walk a path and we, you know, what, what it, what lessons that we what, what lessons mm-hmm. we were taught when we were seven may not apply until you're 49, but you know it, it, it's a part of that path that you're on. So share a couple of those things that you, that you believe that you know those those life lessons that you that you came up with in Georgia like that. You know what are they meant to you? You know it's funny you talk about leaving that zip code, but we left zip codes every two or three years. I don't think we ever yeah. lived anywhere more than three. Um, but and that was that was part of what I learned is that it doesn't matter where you go, people are the same. Uh, <clears throat> you're the only thing that can change in a situation like that. People mm-hmm. are the same everywhere you go. That has held true through my life, uh, whether I'm in Italy or England or Holland or Mexico or or the United States. <clears throat> we're all the same. We're yeah. all the same. We've got cultural differences. We've got differences in the things that we eat. We've got differences in maybe what sports we like or things like that. but at the core, I really believe most human beings are decent people who are just trying to take care of their families. Yeah. And I think that's really what, what most people want more than anything is to be able to live a harmonious life uh, with, with their family and to do as good as they can for their family. So those are the kind of things that you saw growing up in the country is it was much less important how new and nice your pickup truck was then how many friends you had and how many mm-hmm. people liked you and maybe your mm-hmm. pickup truck was old, but if it broke down on the side of the road and 30 people lined up to come give you a ride, that was probably better than having a shiny new pickup truck and no friends. So these yeah. are the kind of things. And, and I mean, just having that, <clears throat> having that country background, having those country groups, uh, and I had one small town grandma and one country, country grandma. So I was able to even break it down even further and see the divide between the small towns and and the countryside. Uh, and it just taught me, don't discount anybody. Don't judge anybody based on where they're from or, or who they are or uh, what, you know, whether their ears are pointy or not. <laughs> sure. Find out who they are. Find out who they are. Um, <clears throat> I also... I, th- I think those experiences that I took with me at 21, I probably was not so proud of my country roots and my Southern Patois, as they might say. And as I got into the big city media thing and I'm going, you know, I'm like, I've got to be important. I've got to be distinct. I've got to be like all of the others so that I can have the same jobs and opportunities that they have. The Lord so, knows if you, if you talk if you talk like that you get hired immediately. Immediately, yeah. <laughs> you know, I proved it. So I just I kind of I I drilled the southern accent out of my voice. I you know I did everything to hide my country roots. And uh, then when I was twenty nine and I signed a contract with with Chicago Tribune to do the syndicated column, 
they actually flew me out to Vegas for the contract signing and to meet everybody and everything. And I got into the boardroom and uh, I'm at this huge wooden table with all these really, really important people. And, you know, sometimes things slip out and one of my Southernisms slipped out and somebody said, Oh oh my God, you're Southern. Say that again. Talk more Southern. (laughs) 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 I realized not only was it not a detriment, it was a benefit and it was who I was. Um, yeah. And I learned I learned at that point to be true with my roots. Um, I love that. And, and I watched that. That began to infuse my work. And, and it's funny. You mentioned earlier, I do pick a little guitar. I play some music. It took me forever to get anybody to listen to me. But I mean, this is how this is how our experiences can can shape us and, and, and wrap us. I always thought I was a rock and roll singer. I always thought I was Bruce Springsteen. And that's what I was supposed to do. So for about 25 years, I made awful music that no one wanted to listen to. <laughs> and it didn't have a heart. It didn't have, it was just always missing something, just always missing something. Right. And as I, you know, slowly came back home and embraced my roots and figured out, Chip Carter, this is who you are. You be who you are. I realized I was a country singer. And I wrote country songs. And once once I started doing that, people started listening. That's been a lot of fun. We'll talk more about that later. But the I I think the most important thing that I learned growing up where I grew up is just kind of always, always live like somebody's watching. Everybody Mm. thinks everybody thinks people in small towns are so much nicer and everything than in big cities. And they are, but not because they're better people. Because of the accountability factor, Todd, you know, if, if we're in if we're in Hayhira, Georgia, and I flip you off at the red light, you probably know who I am, and you're gonna go, you ain't gonna believe Chip Carter flipped me off at the red light. Yeah. But if we're in New York City and I flip you off at the red light, I'm probably never gonna see you again. So it's yeah. an accountability thing. <clears throat> um, I think that's that's powerful though. I mean, that's a powerful statement about accountability. You know, in that sense, and to your point, you know, you talk about that connectivity as well. Right. I mean, and, and then mm-hmm. probably where, where your, where your passion to get into food probably came from is from that upbringing, recognizing that food is an incredibly social experience in the South. It's a part of, it's a part of the culture food as, as a whole, whether it's family meals, it's, it's in my opinion, you know, if you've never, if you've never sat down at a, at a dinner table with, with folks from the South, you've missed something in life, especially a family. Right. It's, it's a cool experience. So I could see where that connectivity, where your, where your desire to get into that food kind of comes back to some of what you just said. Some of it does for sure. But I also yeah. think that's the same cultural experience we have around the world. And that's part of what I love about traveling so much is, is, and, and I have constantly my whole life is getting to sample and know and learn those other cultures and, for sure. and, you know, see how other people do. I'm married yeah. to a Italian girl from Jersey. So, you know, they, there's a family culture. It's a very yeah. different family culture than my family culture. But, you know, speaking directly to agriculture, I remember things like being very young, you know, four and five and six and seven and, you know, being out in the field. And the one I remember very specifically out in West Texas, I must have been six years old and a farmer was growing potatoes and they had, picked most of the field and there were just a few little culls here and there and i found one about the size of a big marble 
And I was just fascinated with it. I was like, that's a potato? And they're like, yeah, that grew in the dirt. That grew right there. Wow, can I keep this potato? Not only that, why don't you bring it back to the house and we'll have it with supper. We're having potatoes for supper, so we'll cook your little potato for you. And Todd, I felt like it was like the biggest gift from God. I was was just like, wow, that's my potato. And Mm -hmm. I carried it. I wouldn't even put it in my pocket. I carried it home from the field, rubbing it, buffing it, shining it, you know, the, the whole thing. And it was just such a special connection. I went and got that potato. I brought that potato home. And when I ate that potato for dinner that night, even though it was just a bite and a half, it was the best potato I ever had. By far. Um, and I see, I still have that same thing. When I go to these farms, I'm not growing this stuff. I'm not, <laughs> not doing that. Mm-hmm. But I still love bringing a box home and showing everybody and sharing for sure. everybody. We went out, we did an episode a couple of weeks ago. We filmed with uh, Feeding America, uh, L&M Farms, Smith Farms, mm-hmm. showing how farmers work with Feeding America and Society of St. Andrew, uh, trying to tackle this food waste problem and also trying to get hungry people fed. And we, uh, it, was, it was funny, my wife, my wife was a, a nurse for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And then she was a college nursing professor for the last five years. Last summer, she was finally able to start joining me and ride with me. So she's starting to see some of this, too. And to see her, uh, we were over in the broccoli fields with L&M and Smith Farms. We got to the end of the day, and uh, the gleaners had already been through. And, of course, there's still lots of usable stuff out there in the field. Mm-hmm. So we had cut three or four heads of broccoli for, uh, a very, for a scene we were filming. I took those and threw them in the trunk. And. My wife had seen three or four, and she took those and threw them in the trunk. And then before we left, I was thinking, well, we might just need three or four more. We got home with a trunk full of broccoli crowns. <laughs> and it's just one of those, like, why did we bring home all of this broccoli? Because yeah. it's fascinating. It's just compelling. Yeah. You feel like it's yours. And so we ate broccoli and everything for about the next three days you know <laughs> sure <laughs> and broccoli and broccoli broccoli shakes you know uh and even even this weekend we were we were in vidalia georgia for the uh vidalia onion banquet and we went out in the the fields with our great friend john schumann and my great wife's guy. been out in onion fields a couple of times but not this time of year where it's really just like a little green onion bulb Right. And we we pulled one up, you know, to show it on camera and, and to taste it and everything. And then she pulled one up and she was immediately that was hers. She carried that onion around for the next three days. We carried it back to to John Schumann's house. We kept it sitting out on the stoop so it didn't smell everything up. We put it in a plastic bag and brought it home because she's determined to bring it to one of the grandbabies. Grandma went and got that onion. This is your onion. And it it's 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 really hard to explain. I don't think anybody who's involved in growing food in our audience will have any trouble understanding that. Uh that you, you really you want to share that bounty. And it doesn't matter if it's one little onion or or a whole crop. It's just fascinating. Where the food comes from is one of the most fascinating stories on the planet. There's a lot of people that don't know. There's a lot of people that think that broccoli grows in the back way of the grocery store. Way more. Yeah, way more. I, I agree with you. You know, and, and it's and, and 
it, it surprises me um, as much as food connects us that there's, there's there is a disconnect in a lot of different ways. And I think that being able to educate folks, whether it's this platform, your platform, to be able to have some of these conversations, to bring some of these brands, ideas, people to the forefront that they mm-hmm. kind of recognize, um, it's really powerful. I mean, food is a very, very powerful thing. It's medicine. It can hurt you, can help you. There's a lot of positive things that can come from it. There's no two ways about it. But it's a, it's an it's an incredible story to tell, and there is so many great stories out there. We we share. We were back and forth on a couple of them earlier. There's a lot of really cool people out doing some really really cool things, and that's why I personally am a big fan of what you're doing because I love the stories that are coming out, especially the way you go about doing them. And I want to get into that a little bit later on, a little bit more depth about the whole show itself and and the whole concept of of why and where and the whole nine yards, but. You know, it's important. It's important that we embrace food. You know, and you talked a little bit about, you know, uh, food waste. And, you know, and one of the things, one of the ways that we can work together on food waste is to work with increased consumption, right? Especially in the produce sector, mm-hmm. right? How much more about, I know, what a great way of doing it is by gaining more consumption of these, you know, these things that are going to make a positive difference in our lives. So I think it's great. I, I really do. Thanks for sharing that. I think it's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I learned <clears throat> something I learned on the Feeding America shoot was that even after a field is harvested, as much as 40% of that crop never makes it to a market. Right. And so that's why we thought it was very important to show that that aspect of, of Feeding America yeah. coming yeah. in and Society of St. Andrew, who is much smaller, much less known. In fact, most people might not be familiar with them. Are, do you know them, Society of St. Andrew? Mm-hmm. They're a gleaning society. Yeah. And everybody goes, what is gleaning? Well, that's when after commercial harvest is done, whatever's left in the field. And it, it's, you know, there's biblical references to gleaners. Right. Uh, there's a famous painting called the gleaners. People would come back through the fields and and recover whatever was left behind for their sustenance. Mm-hmm. You know, and and now there's so much left in the field. Society of St. Andrew is a gleaning, volunteer gleaning society. Right. They will actually come through and pick a a farmer's fields after harvest. You know, we get in all these, we get in contract situations where a deal moves on. Uh, In Florida, strawberries grow abundantly well into May. But the industry, the retail industry switches over to Mexico and California, first of April, no matter what Florida berries are doing. So Mm -hmm. what are you going to do with all that fruit? No farmer wants to waste food. Nobody wants to plow a crop under. Years ago, what they would do is open it up and say, so you pick, come out and get whatever you want. But now the technology in the fields, the care you have to take with the fields, uh, the controls that have to be on a field, you can't just have hundreds of people tromping through your fields Mm -hmm. uh, picking stuff. So where's, where's the solution? Society of St. Andrew comes and gleans it. Feeding America picks it up uh, just for this story. We worked with with Feeding America the first day to see their pickup and scheduling model and all that kind of stuff. Right. And that was at L&M Farms and then at Smith Farms. Society actually came in and we were there for a glean. And they brought hundreds of pounds of fresh broccoli out of that field that would have otherwise gone to waste. And then we One were waste. able to follow it that afternoon. We were in the fields with Society of St. Andrew that morning. That afternoon, within four hours, we were at the local food bank to see the distribution of, that, awesome. of that food. And it's just, it, it's extraordinary what people are doing. Farmers, they're ingenious. Uh, they're 
indefatigable. You can't keep them down. They're, they're, they're just, they're never going to quit. They're never going to quit. Um, but they're also their hearts almost to a one. I, I can't think of a farmer I've ever met who I walked away going, eh, really hate that guy. You know, <laughs> he's really not, you know, even the scratchiest, rawest farmer it has still got something at the heart of them that makes them want to farm. There's easier ways to make a living, Todd. Oh, yeah, there are. And like look, what you, know, you and farmers, me do. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, you're right. I mean, you know, farmers are big risk takers. They go out, they put their, you know, every every crop they put in, they run that sure. risk of it not working. Their family's dependent upon that crop working. You know, um, it's 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 one of the most challenging jobs that you're ever going to face. It's one of the most rewarding jobs you'll ever have, but it certainly is one of the most challenging jobs. And I've seen it in my whole career. I've seen, you know, these guys working 24 hours trying to save something, see, you know, the things that they've had to do. Uh, it, there's a lesson in passion. You know, if you get around farmers enough, there's a lesson, a lesson in passion. Um, that I don't think you'll find in other places um, because of the Agreed. connection to the earth, the connection to mother nature, connection to the sun, the wind, the rain, the bugs, you know, the bull weevils, all of them, right? And, and, I think the, and a, the connection to humanity. Yeah. And the connection to the, the care for their fellow man. Uh, yeah. You know, but, but farming is the only, it's the only industry in the world where you dig a hole in the ground, pour all your money in it and then pray for something to come up. Yeah, but at least I thought it was the only industry in the ground in in the world where you did that until I started a TV show. So now yeah, I can well, really really now you can really yeah. big a, dig a big <laughs> hole in the ground, pour all your money in it, and pray for something to come up. And well, thank God at, it, at, is. So it is. At least well, at least you're you know it's better than saying you got a bag of money, you roll the window down, and you're hoping to keep it in the back of the car, right? That's a little better. <laughs> at least it's going. At least you know where to dig yeah, it back. That's up. right. That's right. I know where it is. What? That's for sure. You know, when you when you did, you know, and you and you you guys did the Southeast Produce Weekly publication. Um, you know, that was definitely, I think, a combination of the path and you know the direction you've kind of gone. Talk a little bit about what motivated you to dive into that. And then I think two-part question I'm gonna throw at you just to because it seems to make sense. What is the produce industry in, you know, because you've seen it from a global scale. So I I, I want to pinpoint just just specifically on the South and sure. Southeast. What is the what is the produce industry in the Southeast taught you? And, and maybe we throw back to some of the things when you, you know, the son of the George preacher, when you were young, those life lessons you got kind of wrap that up for me a little bit, if you could. You know, it was, uh, it, it was great relearning the industry the way that I did get the, like I said earlier, start in Florida, spread out Georgia, then the Southeast sure. and here, then there. Um, because it was, it was, it was not just people who I was familiar with in the Southeastern mm -hmm. industry were literally people I grew up with. Mm -hmm. These were our friends and family and the congregations of our churches. And, and it didn't matter if it was Tequila, Georgia or Franklin, Georgia or Cary, Texas, uh, <clears throat> or, or Madison, Georgia, uh, the people were going to be the same. And, and that was going to be the same. Um, so when I came into the industry, I understood them. And, and that was great. And I think it made it easier for me to just focus on what are y'all doing? You know, mm. what are y'all doing now? To be fair, there was a lot of places I went for the first two years. And, you know, I just had a camera hanging around my neck and a reporter's notepad in my hand. And, and uh, <clears throat> for about two years, this is another thing about this industry. 
every question I asked anybody got one of two answers. Yes, sir. Or no, sir. And no. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and, you know, when I kept sniffing around and coming around long enough, they finally said, well, you know, maybe he's all right. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll talk a little bit more. Right. And that's, you know, it was a persistence. It was, uh, uh, it was an honest effort to gain their trust and to earn their trust and be worthy of their trust and to let them understand, I really am here to tell your story. I'm not here to tell my story. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to slip in the back door and go, they use pesticides, you know, there's a million conversations. It's just so much more complex. <clears throat> All of it is just so much more complex. So for the, the people in the Southeast to get to know me and start to vouch for me was, was huge as I spread out from this space. And as I started going nationally and internationally uh I, I discovered the the exact same thing the farmers are the same everywhere um what we do see in the southeast and and we started southeast produce weekly uh and it it continues as its own newsletter now that will right. highlight the the southeastern interest in where the food comes from um but i, I think what what that started was um, it was a region that felt kind of like with the existing trade media, they didn't always get a voice. Uh, their dollars were very welcome, but their agendas did not maybe get the same kind of attention that, that other areas of the country did. Uh, I'm, I, I can't speak to whether that's the case or not. I saw an opportunity and a need and, and I had a lot of people asking me for it. They're, you know, it's kind of like, can't we do something? Can't we do something? I'm like, yes, we can. <clears throat> so we have and we did. Uh, yeah. and, and again, that was all part of Southeast Produce Weekly was just the the opening door. That's the one we could afford to do first. Yeah, right. and, and that's where we knew we'd get support from the industry because I had so many great friends here. And it, it's not just friends who are, you know, it's kind of like, oh, I'll throw some money at it. Uh, it's people who understood what my vision was. And before before I left uh, place A to go start place B, uh, I, I made some long drives. I went and talked to some very key people whose opinions I value greatly and whose support I value greatly. Uh, and two of one, they were all like, we're in. We believe in what you're doing. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll ride with you. Uh, so, and it was just enough, uh, to get going and, <clears throat> you know, I can't say there was any hardship in those first couple of years. We weren't rich, but we were growing and everything we were making was plowing back into the company, but, but, you know, we didn't miss any meals either. Um, the goal, we had a three year business plan. Mm -hmm. From the day that Southeast Produce Weekly went live in March of 2017, the goal was in three years to have have where the food comes from on the air as a television series. Right. And some somehow, um, you know, you talk about walking this path and whatever enlightens that path, whether you choose to call it God or destiny or fate or, 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 or whatever it is to you. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I felt those forces at work. 
and and those those first three years just went like a dream. Now, I didn't walk around at the start of this saying, I'm going to make a TV show and I'm going to put all y'all on TV because they'd have hauled me off to the nutty house. Um, as we'd say in Georgia, they'd have carried me to Milledgeville. So <laughs> that's where the <clears throat> home for the criminally insane was when I was growing up. So we were always Milledgeville hung over our heads like a threat. It's actually a lovely little town. Uh, <laughs> So I I didn't know how any of this was going to happen. I had started producing video for the other trade publication I was with, and I had done that a couple of years. Uh, I wasn't even on camera. I was just the producer. And uh, we had a couple of of spokespeople, a couple of anchor people who were were selected by the publisher, and I worked with them. Uh, And then that's how we'd cover trade shows and things like that. And when we went out in the field and went to the farms, there wasn't even a narrator. It was just, we were just, you know, it's very common on the internet to not have someone standing there going, this is a broccoli field. This is a broccoli farmer. You didn't need that when the broccoli Mm -hmm. farmer could just stand there and go, hey, you see broccoli, right? And I'm a farmer. So you know, that's who I am. You don't need someone to tell you that. Right, right. We were doing, doing those kind of videos. And then when I started Southeast Produce Weekly, I knew that that was obviously I had a plan for a TV show. I knew that was a key component of it. Sure. And, but we kept making them that way. We kept making them with, with, uh, they were narrative driven, not narrator driven. So the, it's the story was telling itself and the people on the camera were the ones telling the story. And I was still behind the camera. Um, started building a relationship. I knew about RFD TV. Uh, at that time they had been in a bad deal with, dish network so that dish had the exclusive rights to their hd feed so even in 2017 the rfd signal on other on other providers uh was still that old grainy you, you know yeah. standard def channel and i was kind of waiting i'm kind of like that's going to run out someday and they're going to be hd everywhere and i said i want to be in a position uh when they do to be part of that and uh, so I built a relationship with their marketing team. We started giving publicity to some RFD TV shows and and Molly B Poker uh, Party, baby. Molly Sharon, B's yeah, Sharon, Sharon Hughes. Uh, you know, Molly B Poker Party, Hee Haw, which was my grandparents' favorite. But yeah. then, you know, even more importantly at that time and and some of what the focus is now, uh, the big draw at that time was Farm Her. Uh mm-hmm. Margie Geiler Alanis' show that focuses on women in agriculture. And it's just, it's fantastic. And that was, that was the direction that they saw to, to go somewhere new. And that's, that's more where the network is going now uh, is shows like Margie's show and, and our show. There's always going to be plenty of room on RFD TV for the Jimmy Dean show <laughs> and the Molly B polka party. Don't, you know, these people have got, hey. you know, they got audiences, they got fans, they got, you know. I I love Molly. I mean, I joke. I love Molly B. Both parties are fantastic. If you have a, if so if you haven't sat down and watched Molly B, you're missing something good. You kind of you are, and you and, are. Uh, and Larry's Country Diner. Uh, you know, yeah. he brings out these legendary songwriters and everything. They sit around and pick guitars and tell the stories of the songs. Yeah, you know. So there's some there's some good programming on there, but the 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 goal. Uh, my first goal was to just get in touch with them 
and so through the marketing back doors of giving away free publicity for several months, when their HD channel went live, I was ready because I already yeah. we, we had the videos, we had the archive. I already knew what I was going to show them if I could get anybody to take a look. And it was we were heading into the PMA Fresh Summit in New Orleans in 2017. Mm-hmm. And in the days coming up to that, I thought it was finally time. And I got in touch with their marketing people. I said, by the way, we've been making all of these videos <laughs> as we go. And if we're heading to a big show, if we could be of any help, you know, maybe the news side could use us. So I right. sent them a bunch of clips and they looked and they're like, and this conversation actually happened on the drive to PMA, Todd, on the, on the drive to Fresh Summit. So I left Tampa not knowing. And by the time I got to New Orleans, I knew that, that we were going to move forward as a future on the air with RFD TV. That's and exciting. It was just super cool. Um, well, so they didn't want us to do anything for that show. Um, but we came back uh, and we had a couple more meetings and it all looked good. And I'm kind of like, here we go. We're going to start putting stuff on the news. We're going to start getting produce on, on the air, on national television. And then the, final, then the final domino fell. They're kind of like, all right, this is all great. We love it. We love everything you're doing. They said, but. One thing I remember, we didn't have a narrator. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't have a reporter. We didn't have that. This is broccoli. This is a farm. Right, right, right. right, right and right. they said, we can't do it without someone on the air, without a narrator. I'm kind of like, well, I'm sure we can find somebody. They said, why don't you come out <laughs> from behind the camera, camera and stand in front of it and do exactly what you're doing now? Do exactly what you're doing now, just in front of the camera. So. You know, I was like, all right, here we go. And so somehow, Todd, I drew these lines in the sand uh, in in late 2016 and early 2017. And I set these objectives that were absolutely ridiculous. I mean, just ridiculous. So ridiculous, I didn't dare tell people about television or about my plans for television. Mm-hmm. Because they'd go, boy, he's really, he's lost it now. You know, delusions of grandeur or whatever. Uh, but I knew it was there and it was just that that path that you talk about, it was illuminated. Yeah. And it said, yeah. these are the things, these are the pieces. And every bit of it required what every farmer in the world does every day, which is yet another giant leap of faith. Hi, I'm Nate Hefty, Vice President of Sales at Superior Fresh, the nation's largest aquaponic farm located in central Wisconsin. Thank you for listening to Todd Versations and Todd Bits. Check us out at www.superiorfresh.com to learn how we raise our Atlantic salmon on a non-GMO organic diet. And they thrive in water naturally filtered by our USDA certified organic leafy greens. Never treated with hormones, antibiotics, or pesticides, and packed with two times the omega-3s. This is salmon as it should be. Shop with us online and use the discount code TLC2022 to receive free shipping on all of our American Heart Association's Heart Health Checked Atlantic Salmon. At Superior Fresh, we are changing how food is grown to change the world. Remember the code TLC2022 to get free shipping. Yeah, thinking about to your time in, you know, at the Tribune in Chicago starting out, right? Because that you know, print print was was basically king. Oh, for the most part, you had three TV stations, basically, you know, for, for lack, you know, basically, you know, the, the, the big three. That was your news source. 
Now you're in this this new world today, right? You know, the lens of history is a little different, right? Looking back now to where we are from the news. I mean, the news is all over the board. There's a bunch of words you can associate it with it. However you want to go, I'm not really interested in going down the trail. But so you you go off to create this show, right? I want to talk about a little little bit more in depth about uh, the the TV show itself, right? Because you guys, you know, you're you're talking from laboratory to legislation. You know, really, it's a top-down view. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, you're really bringing out some really, really good stories. So again, kind of throw a little bit of a curveball question at you. The impetus, you know, when you started thinking about really getting here, you know, the media world has changed. Has that affected you in any way? Do you, do you feel differently now about being on TV than, than you did when you were really kick, kicking this around, you know, years back because it is so much different? You have more concerns about being out there today in any way? Not really. Um, you know, this is the boat I chose to 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 to, to get, get into, on. Yeah. You, yeah, you know, yeah. and this is if it's a buck and bronco. Well, I'm the one who put the saddle on. So sure, you know, nobody forced me to do any of this. Uh, even when RFD said, "Why don't you come out from around the camera?" There was a part of me that said, "Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fun. Let's go do that." And that was 100 right. It's been an absolute yeah. blast. Um, but you know the changes in media yeah it's it's crazy when i was syndicated with the chicago tribune my audience every week was in the hundreds of millions yeah. and i mean we can't we can't even calculate that in 2022 you know the idea of a seinfeld type tv show that 25 million people were going to tune into every single week you know mm-hmm. there used to be you know, everybody go to work the next day and you're all talking about the same show. Right. That's what everybody watched. Uh, you're all talking about the article you read in the newspaper sure. that morning, you know, but, sure. Uh, but, sure. but no. So how's it different? I think the, the biggest, most disturbing way that it's different is it's, there's no instant credibility and there's no instant verifiability. In the old media structure, when we had Chicago Tribunes and New York Timeses and Washington Posts and NBC and CBS, you knew that even though you might not like everything they said, they were probably telling the truth. Right. And now when you're online and in online media, especially, you don't know if this is a credible, reliable, trustable source or if it's some disgruntled nut living in his mom's basement who is just able to use the power of technology to make it look like he's got some big grand stand to, to get up on and some reason for people to listen to it. So, you know, in that same time period, we've gone from, you know, people understanding that there are people who are good at different things. Farmers are good at farming and people like you and me are good at talking and, you know, and scientists are good at doing science and researchers are good at doing research. And I think the this lack of a grounded, credible, verifiable media structure has kind of left us all grasping for straws. And mm-hmm. it's all made us experts and idiots at the same time. And we, we kind of we don't know who to believe. But I mean, I know people who couldn't pass a science test in fourth grade who now think they know more than the world's top scientists. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Well, so, no doubt. No, you're right. I mean, you know, we're, we're kind it's, of really, it's really easy. Yeah, we're kind of in a in a credibility blackout right now. 
mm-hmm. and it's just very difficult to know what's what's correct and what's not. Yeah. Oh, I would agree. And, and to your point, you know, people, any, anybody can have anybody can have a voice and hide behind it, right? When you when you when you when you type something, that's not a voice, right? When you speak something, you see, you know, in order for a voice to work, it has to come out of your mouth, right? It, that's true. Writing, you know, you know, and, and I think sometimes we find ourselves you're seeing stuff that comes out, but it's just like ah, that's just so disappointing, right? And it has no place. And I think that's a lot of what we see out there today. What you know, what is the show? And I mean. I, just kind of kind of sum up a little bit about the show, which I mean, you know, I hope everybody gets to check it out. It's 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 a wonderful show, by the way. And I'm gonna give you some props. I enjoy it. You know, I sent you an email the other day about the uh the mushroom guys, you know, and I was that right. guy that guy was a trip. But you know, what is the show? I mean, from your heart, what does the show mean to you? Because I think that's what's really impactful about your show. Because you wear because brother, you wear the show on your sleeve, right? There's, yeah, there's no there's no BS in you, right? There's no BS factor when you're on the show. You know exactly where your heart stands. So tell me a little bit about what the show means, because I think that's what's going to draw people to the concept of what you're trying to do. Honestly, every time I step in front of the camera, I'm talking to my grandparents. Mm. I'm talking to my grandparents. That's powerful. That's powerful. Um, coming from where I came from and the time and the era that I came from, I look at my parents' world and my grandparents' world. Uh, and their parents' world, and I see things that I thought were eternal that were part of my legacy and, and, and history that are just going away. They're just going away. And in part, I'm not willing to let those go unhonored and, and unnoticed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of how many millions of dirt farmer families there have been, and this is this is an era that's going to pass us over. And in 200, 300 years, when we're doing food a whole different way, right. it's, it's an era that's not going to be remembered. I'd like to make some of those scratch on the wall that says we was here and we was working. We were out, <laughs> we were out ah. in the dirt. We were feeding ourselves and we were feeding other people. And I that, love that. that's really where I try to, that's where I try to bring it from. We at the same time um, with a very progressive and forward looking view, because as much as I honor where we came from, I'm much more interested in where we're going. But mm-hmm. I don't think you can know one adequately without knowing both. A hundred percent. You can't know where you're going without knowing where you came from. So oh, we're trying okay. to honor those things. We're trying to we're trying to put those, you know, collective shout outs and put together kind of a uh, a top down view of who we are now, uh, especially in rural America at this point in life, and, you know, who these farmers are, who is this farm generation, who is this farm population. In so doing, we, we're we stretching roots out into the past and telling some of those stories, mm-hmm. and we're stretching out way into the future and, and looking at what's coming next and what's coming right around the corner. Let's talk about that for a little bit. You know, yeah. and, and, and it- Let's talk about the next generation of farmers because it's something I talk about all the time. It's it's an area that I find great concern in when you take a look at what the stats are coming out of the USDA that says we don't have a second generation or a third generation coming, and that's a problem. And you know, if somebody's out growing corn and he ain't growing corn, we got to figure out where the corn's coming from, right? I mean, it, it's the math. The math is pretty simple. Like I always say, I went to Woodland Elementary, but I learned math early. But you know, <laughs> at, at the end of the day, that's that's a problem. Talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing in your perception of the problem about next generation farmers, because you're in an area. You know, the South is an area where that generation, in some ways, is 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 more existent than perhaps in others. But just perhaps. share a little bit of what you what perhaps. you're seeing. And it's really important to keep in mind how extensively I've traveled throughout the rest of the nation too. Sure. So, so it's not just a one 
one-sided view. Um, For sure. I I hear this constantly, and it, the average age of the American farmer is 57 years old. What are we going to do? Do you know what the average age of the American farmer was when John F. Kennedy was president? 53. Oh, 53. It's not. It hasn't changed that much. Uh, <clears throat> and I hear all these numbers, and I hear all this gloom and doom, and I hear all these concerns. But also when Kennedy was president, 51% of Americans made their living, made their living from agriculture, either agriculture, upstream or yeah. downstream. If it wasn't direct, upstream or downstream, over half the country right. made their living from agriculture. Now it's one and a half percent. So I think the bigger concern is not the numbers of people coming. Who are the next generation of farmers going to be? Everywhere I go, Todd, I see young people coming into farming. I see people 20 and 30 clamoring to get into farming. I see people who are 40 years old trying to push their moms and dads on out the door so they can get, you know, so they can get their crack at it. Uh, yeah. and, and I think also one thing that kind of skews the numbers a lot is I've never met a retired farmer. That ain't going to happen. It's just, you know, they may step away from day-to-day duties and run in the office, but they're still there. So, you know, when your workforce, when you're reporting that your CEO is 87 years old, <laughs> yeah. that might spike your numbers some. Um, I think there are a lot of, uh, a lot of grassroots efforts going on that I see and that I'm aware of as I travel. That That's are good. that are engendered towards bringing young people into farming and who are trying yeah. to create opportunity. Uh, South Carolina uh, University, uh, South Department of, uh, Department of Agriculture, and they're not the only ones. Uh, they've got a great program where they're connecting young people who want to get into farming with older people who it's time for them to stop and either the kids aren't interested in taking over the farm or mm-hmm. what, whatever the reason, this is a story we hear all the time. Yeah. You, you know, uh, mom and dad built the farm and then the kids just grew up with money and they, they don't want to be farmers. So what happens to the farm? Well, in South Carolina, this part of the department of agriculture now connects those young farmers who are looking in with those old farmers who don't have anything to do mm-hmm. with their legacy. And they're handing off that legacy and making it an affordable buyout so that it sustains the farmer who's selling it and also makes it feasible for the younger farmers to get in. And I think we're going to see more and more of that kind of stuff across the nation. And, and I think it's already happening. I think so much of it is grassroots. Uh, I think USDA does a great job. I've got a lot of a lot of good friends over there. Hey, Faith. Uh, <laughs> so, but but they don't know everything, and nobody knows everything. That's what is so important to me, Todd, about not doing this job behind a desk. Uh, you you got to be out in that small town. Yeah, you got to talk to to those to the kids at Walmart or whatever, and you know. What does it feel like in your town? Well, we're gonna, we're probably gonna go into farming. We're gonna do, you know, and and you just see, um, you know, every time I get a email from a community college saying, you know, we're starting a beginning agriculture program or something like that, I see these sparks, and I don't know. People ask me all the time, what can we do to get more young people in farming? Uh, I don't know. I saw a, 
I saw a sign last week at the North Carolina State Farmers Market in Raleigh. It was at the market restaurant. And it says, uh, opportunity is missed by most people because it wears overalls and looks a lot like work. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Oh, it's true. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's, 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 that, that really struck me. I took a picture of that. Yeah, well, you know, you're right, yeah, though, but we need to be empowering these young people, though. We need to be we need to be embraced. The industry needs to be embracing and driving, you know, folks. Uh, agreed, but here's the million-dollar yeah. question. We we have crops that go unharvested because we can't, even though we've had and have and have record unemployment and up and down, there's still people without jobs. We just came through a crisis of epic proportion uh, where where there were so many people unemployed, and yet we've got jobs by the score that can't be filled in agriculture because mm-hmm. they're just nobody wants to do them everybody's like well yeah. this generation is just too lazy they're not going to do it or what well um you know that's kind of the progression of of evolution um i i didn't i didn't raise my kids saying you know i want you to be a lettuce picker it's just, and there is there is no shame in an honorable profession, but we all want our kids to to do better. Uh, you know, my mom, when she was three years old, she had to pick a sack of cotton as tall as she was before she could go play. So you know, we didn't, yeah, I didn't, it's a different. I didn't have a cotton field for my kids to work in. Right. So you know, I think part of it, we've grown up in a, a air conditioned world. I mean, I was part of that the in the South here, especially the transition of a generation from no air conditioning to everything air conditioned. Um, that work is hard, and it's outdoors, and it's hot. I, uh, one of my my associate producer and one of my editors, uh, I was seeing an exchange. They were trading some notes for an episode, and it was on North Carolina sweet potatoes, and we were out in the fields, and it was August, so it was hot. Uh, you know, and and I saw the note that the that the associated producer sent to the editor. Can we do something to get some of Chip's sweat stains damped down so much <laughs> so that they're not just blasting through on the on the camera? You know, and I jumped in immediately and said, "No, they need to see me sweat. This is not, yeah. you know, this is not the the Chip Carter glamour show." I mean, there's times where it's pouring off my face. Yeah. It's not my shirt. I could just wring it out, you know, and it might not be the most attractive thing you see that day, but it might it's really reality, make a though. point with you. Uh, <clears throat> and I think a lot of that, Todd, a lot of the answer to why we're not seeing more young people get into farming is because it's hard and there's yeah. no way to sugarcoat it. There mm-hmm. is no way. Yeah, the morning is beautiful and that sunrise is beautiful and those fields are beautiful and the rainbows and the rainbirds as they march across the field are beautiful. But good Lord, you're fitting to put in a day every time you go to work. And that day might last. That might be seven days every week. Yeah, no, it's it's no, it's going to be so it's it's 25, 25 hours a day and eight days a week. Right. Yeah. So I think uh, I think like a lot of people. Uh, where I hold out a lot of hope, where I believe the industry is going next, automation. automation. For sure. Yeah, that's going to change. I mean, that, there's, that's there's no that's, other option. Yeah, that's so, that's definitely going to be a big. That's going to be I a think, big change. And 
I think but, young people are going to continue to come to agriculture on their own. Uh, some for the reasons they already have, always have, it's the opportunity that's presented them. Some, the same thing that I was talking about with my kids being 15 years old and getting interested in food and what it means and, and where it comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're going to see even more of that. I think that's why I've got a TV show. That's why I've got this TV show. There is that desire there to know. And as more of this generation knows and finds out, uh, I think they're just going to naturally be drawn to agriculture. I've got a son right now who has started experimentally over the last four or five years. He's trying to grow everything he can. He would love to get into farming. He's in a different lane in the corporate world right now. But he's looking, he's going, I, I, I just, there's something about this I just love. There's something about this I just love. And he's looking, he's looking into ways to start a little side venture farming. And I Love think, um, I think it's just, it's just the kind of business. I don't, I don't think it's going to matter <clears throat> if we go recruit people. I think they're going to come in organically. One thing that we see is there are so many family businesses that if you run out of lineage, <clears throat> then you got a problem. But then I see a lot of big companies that were formerly only family businesses. I'll point out uh, Lipman, the, the big tomato and veg people, uh, mm -hmm. who for many generations were known as Six L's before they took on the family last name, which was Lipman. Right. But now there's not very many Lipmans left at Lipman. There are a couple, and and you know their management team, their leadership team, their executive team has come from recruitment, and yeah. so it's. Still a family business, but it's a corporation. It's got to run like a corporation, and it and it answers to that. So that talent was recruited elsewhere. Right, right. So right, I think right. we're going to see some of that. But that you know, anytime you've got a a model that is that is family driven, it how do you attract young people to it? Well, if you're not breeding them, it's kind of tough because who's going to make room for you in a family business? That's always suspect. Anybody who's ever worked. For a family business and wasn't part of the family, knows that yeah. redheaded stepchild yeah. thing. So. You know, you know it. All, yeah, you know it very well. Believe me. Well, what, let's 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 flip let's flip over to the other side of the equation. Talk about hmm. you know things that might be exciting you a little bit out there. Whether it be you know you mentioned automation slash technology. I'll add that word to it. Maybe it's organics or some of the new things that are happening in that sector, or whatever. But I mean, what's what's kind of what kind of excites you right now? Everything. I mean, you, you know, where's the water going to come That's from? an easy answer. I didn't find out that's an easy answer. Oh, I'm prepared to talk about it all. Oh, okay. though, so, yeah, that wasn't, a, <laughs> that wasn't a blanket. Um, you know, the, the water thing is eternally an issue. Huge. Uh, yeah. you, you know, part of part of the reason for, for my southeastern focus, <clears throat> water's part of it. Uh, southeastern growers don't have unlimited access to water, but they got more water than anybody else. And I look at so many of the situations on the ground in California right now, water, labor, the business climate, it's becoming increasingly difficult to do business in California. Never Very mind hard. the fact that everything that you grow, you're going to put on a truck and ship across the country to where 80% of the population is. Right. Even 10, 12 years ago, FOB on that eastbound freight was six, eight thousand dollars a truck. Yeah. Now it's 14, 16. This week, yeah. next week, 
Next week, it'll be 18. Week after that, it'll be 20. At what point do we see diminishing returns? And I think, I think when you look at our food supply chain, what you see is a network that is the end result of a wealthy society. And, mm-hmm. and I think that was a luxury that we're not going to have moving forward. People are starting to look at food miles. Mm-hmm. People are starting to look at food waste. And mm-hmm. it's, not, <clears throat> it's not just for ecological reasons. And it's not just tree huggers who are sitting here going, no, dude, we want the local. It was grown by farmer ground. You know, it, it, even though in a lot of cases we know Farmer Brown went and bought it at the state terminal farmers market and put it in a peach basket and resold it. But, um, you, you know, it's not just that. We're talking about the industry itself right. is beginning to ask questions. Why are we constantly trucking watermelons from Mexico to Georgia where they grow? You know, uh, I think we're, we're having to be smarter uh, about the food supply chain. And mm-hmm. and and I think we're we're on the edge of some real change in this industry that's going to be from factors uh, that are going to be ecological. Uh, sustainability is going to be key, and this is all coming from consumers. This is all coming. This is all coming from uh, uh, from the people on the street as they become aware. I mean. We got a a, a press release week before the Super Bowl, Todd, from Hellman's Mayonnaise. All right. Number one, why is Mayonnaise sending me, you know, a a press release? And it it was for their Super Bowl ad, which was Mayo times Mayo. And they they had brought on Gerard Mayo, the NFL player and coach, as a spokesperson. Um, And Gerard Mayo and Hellman's Mayo together. <clears throat> we're teaming up to tackle food waste. What? You know, and the commercial is hilarious. I mean, it's Gerard Mayo. Somebody's throwing something out of their refrigerator and he tackles them. And grandma's doing this. They bring in a cameo from Pete Davison and other celebrities. And, you know, it's, it's just all about being more mindful. Uh, right. I'm not sure Hellman's mayonnaise really cares if you throw out your four day old day lettuce when it could last one more day. Uh, but the optics sure are favorable for them and for them to invest in a Super Bowl ad yeah, and that yeah. kind of celebrity production budget, they weren't even trying to sell mayonnaise. They were just talking about food waste. Food waste. Yeah. And that to me, that's <clears throat> if yeah. we don't yeah. get if we don't get that message as an industry, we're we're missing it because they're screaming it. Uh they don't want to waste food. They want to talk about sustainable production and they're going to start sure. demanding yeah. it. Uh, and then I think at the very same time, we're going to be looking both as an industry for economic reasons and for marketing reasons. We're going to be reevaluating how far we're sending things and why. Why is the industry switching over to California and Mexico berries April 1st when there's abundant berries? I saw berries. Last week, February it was, and I was in North Carolina looking at fresh strawberries grown in the field. No hydroponics, no nothing. So it's, it's, I, th- I think we're going to, we're in for a period of much reevaluation. And I think we may see some more regional lines being drawn. And I think that's going to be, I think it's wise. 
and I think our current system is is a byproduct of affluence, and I don't think we affluent no more. Yeah, I think we, yeah. we're, a little, we're a little more broke down than we were. So I think I think we're about to, I think we're about to put everything on the microscope, Todd, Todd, and just and start dissecting it and seeing what directions it goes. Yeah, I don't disagree with you on that. I think we're going to have to we're going to have to pivot. Let's you know, and, and we know we're going to have a whole lot more people here to feed, right? I mean, that's coming. And so we're going to have to get smarter. We're going to have to look at it. We're going to have to look at these resources, that the impact it has on the planet, the impact it has long term. You know, so much, I think, of what we do, we do something today. We don't necessarily know what this impact is going to be 10 years from now, even though it does have an impact. Hmm. And I think you're right. These conversations are going to have to be elevated. Um, you know, we're going to have to get smarter about things we do for the climate. We're going to have to get smarter about the things we do for the planet. We're going to have to, do, you know, from a resource standpoint alone, I agree with you. I think that I think we're at the you know, kind of the impetus of a revolution in a lot of ways when it comes to our food. And I think if anything, the last two years taught us is the power of food um, and that it can make a difference. And it's important. And people are learning how to cook again. People are, you know, they, they didn't get an opportunity to go drive through like they normally would on a Wednesday, right? Or Taco Tuesday, whatever it might be. It was Taco Tuesday at home. So I think that you, you what I'm excited about is this younger generation. And if there's something positive out of this two years in, in the sense of what we're talking about, Maybe I think you got a lot of kids. Yeah, I, I think you've got a lot of kids that got involved in cooking and thinking and food. And sure. I think it's going to be similar to what your son did when he was 15. I think it's going to be a really important thing. So to me, I, I find that to be really, really exciting is to see that, you know, hopefully we are breeding into this next kind of next generation of consumer, but a consumer that comes from a higher level of consciousness. Yeah. And I think that's going to be really important. And a desire to be informed and a desire to know. And I mean, this is exactly why my my open for the TV show every week is I do my little setup piece and then whatever it is, I look at the camera and I say, come on, let me take you where the food comes from. Yeah. That's literally what I'm doing. And that's what they want to do. They want to go see where it comes from. I so agree. I think, I think part of it is that the industry, I think the unspoken impetus for anybody in agriculture every day is the awareness of that increasing population and the numbers we all walk around with. By 2050, world population is going to grow. How are we going to feed them all? Yeah. Well, you know, what we've seen is over the course of the last 60 to 70 years, um, half of all Americans feeding everybody to one and a half percent of all Americans feeding everybody. That is research. That is science. That is technology. That is smart, man. That yeah. is that's nothing but blazing intellect and dedication and devotion and passion. And I think that's going to continue. And I think, you know, you talk about organics. Well, you know, in an ideal world, everything's organic. You know, we know. Used to, used to be. Yeah. But I mean, that, we called it the bad old days, Todd. So yeah. <laughs> we, had, <clears throat> we had things like famine and, you yeah. know, uh, pestilence and, and these kind of things. So it's, I talk a lot about hard choices and it's kind of a, a central theme of the show. You know, we all got to make hard choices every day, starting with when the alarm clock goes off, mm -hmm. do we do what we want to do, which is turn it off and roll back over? Or do we get up and do what we have to do? You know, that's right. the first hard choice we have to make here today. And as a individuals, we have to make those choices as groups. We have to make those choices as societies and as a world, we have to make those choices. And, and I think, one of those choices that's increasingly coming into play is organic or not organic. Mm -hmm. uh, I tell people all the time, we are fortunate enough to live in a nation where if you want and can afford to eat organic, 
you can pretty much do that and not mm-hmm. be missing out on anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now we know that that the chemicals and fertilizers and pesticides, it's not an ideal situation. Uh, then again, that the the Romans used powdered lead and arsenic as insecticides <laughs> on their crops. So you know, we made some progress on 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 some of those. Um, you know, I do feel like the people on the research side into all of this are very, you know, they're not just saying, let's kill all the bugs and to hell with the rest. We ain't worried about it. I think they're saying, how do we protect the environment? How do we, you know, how can we up our game? How can we do it better? And then I never met a farmer who used a nickel's worth more of inputs than was necessary for the crop. Nobody, no doubt. Wants, nobody wants to. But this numbers game that we're talking about, these ever-increasing numbers, 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 that's another thing about traveling, man. If you sit in one spot, you never have any idea how vast the world is, how many people a billion people is, three billion, five billion. It's just you 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 can't you can't comprehend it. You can't <clears throat> you can't put it in a box. But they're they're here and they're coming and they're going to keep coming. How do we feed them all is one of the big pressing issues of our day. Now, as more advanced societies like ours look and go, all right, now beyond that, not only how can we feed everybody, how can we feed everybody better and right. healthier? You know, so then the next step in that conversation becomes organic. Mm-hmm. You know, well, how do we produce organic to scale? To feed everybody and to make price points, you, you know, uh, something where this is just a, just a normal thing in, in America and in stores and restaurants and the home. Uh, I think part of that is progressive. I think the new, uh, man, the, the hothouse model that was developed in Canada that's now going everywhere. Uh, you, you go in one of those spaceships and you're that's like, That's a oh, game changer. Yeah, it's like this is how we're going to grow food on 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 Mars. Not quite, but not quite. You know what? Yeah, you know what? I mean, it's the same. It's that foreign to the idea of dirt farming. You know, to to being out in the in the farm and the dirt and the rows and everything, and then you walk in one of these greenhouses. There's 50 foot tomato vines hanging from the ceiling. Uh, You're like, this is not a farm like anything I've ever seen in my life. I'm very excited about those. I don't, you know, they're not going to put dirt farming out of business. Uh, hmm. you know, there's a lot of inputs. There's a lot of cost uh, in, in doing that. But what excites me about it is that everything that's grown in a facility like that is innately organic. Mm-hmm. So as we scale up that production, that's something to keep an eye on. Maybe that, maybe that's how we get a larger and larger and larger percentage of organic uh, product is by not fighting Mother Nature out in the fields, but by bringing it inside. I don't disagree with that. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm I'm very much pro. You know, not all ag technology, but some ag technology. Some's not great. Some is. Uh, but I agree with you when it comes to these greenhouses. It's something we have to look at. It's real hard to look away, even in the organic sector. It's really hard to look away at the core movement of the organics. You know, 35 years ago, and the belief sure. system even upholds today. It's hard to look away when you're putting. You know, you're taking 2,000 miles off a truck. 
and you're using 90% less water. And, you know, what you're doing in 13 acres, you take you 300 acres of inputs to do out in the dirt. I mean, it's not, and again, and we're not going to get away with dirt. And I'm not anti-dirt in any, in any way whatsoever. It's just going to be what's next. It's no different than going from a draft horse to a tractor or a payphone on the corner to the cell phone in your pocket. It's a part of that technological train. And that train's left the station. So if we're trying to grab a hold of it to bring it back, y'all ain't strong enough, right? It's gone. And I think that it's going to be important that we start to look at this. And I look from the perspective when we look at technology is how do we raise the bar, right? Mm. How do we start to put things in and say, okay, you know, how are you going to be organic? And why are you doing this and this and that? And so to me, I'm all about this open conversation. I agree with you. I think it's going to be really fascinating to see where it goes. I've been in these spaceships to your point. I've seen them. I've walked them. You know, they're very impressive and you're right. They're not cheap to do. But then again, in 25 years, as these guys are investing, what I call, you know, working the positive cost of food, investing in this, what's it going to be like in 25 years? We don't know. We don't follow that path. But look, if it doesn't get any rain in California, we got a real problem. We haven't had any rain in several months, right? We got a lot and we've got none. We got we got trees blooming already. We got allergy season already starting. You know, it, it, it's, it's California, from your point earlier about water. It's real. I mean, we're, we know we don't get any more rain this year here mm-hmm. in California. I'm expecting that letter from the water department that says you can use 55 gallons a day as a resident. That's 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 something to really take a look at. That's nothing. <laughs> 55 gallons is not much, right? Every time you think about laundry and taking a shower, whatever the case may be. Sure. So I I think that we have to look at this. I think we need to look at it with open eyes, and I appreciate your perspective on it. Oh, absolutely. And 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 I think also, too, it takes all of it, Todd. And I think ultimately yeah, it's a combination yeah. of, of dirt farming. And, and and I mean, this extends to cattle and ranching and poultry and pork. And, and you know, we've even <clears throat> we got an episode coming up in season two on the wild caught seafood industry mm-hmm. because I, I kind of came in with perspective of I bet those folks have to deal with the same kind of regulations and restrictions and headaches that our farmers do, that our land farmers do. Let's go find out. Well, yeah, it's exactly the same. Speak exactly the same language. We're just on a boat. (laughs) They're just just bringing fish up from the bottom of the sea. It's the world's largest farm. So so it's going to be a combination of all of that. It's going to be the Mm -hmm. spaceship pot houses. It's going to be the the field grown. It's going to be advances in field grown. We got an episode in season one called Farming Like It's 1699. We met a farmer in South Carolina named Nat Bradford. And it's Nat and his wife and their five kids. And they grow the same crop mix that their ancestors grew on the same land 200 years ago from the same heirloom seeds that have been handed down generation by generation. And it's just extraordinary. It's all biocontrols and they're all ancient. Now he's brought in, you know, advances that have been made. He's not walking, he's not Amish. He's not walking around, you know, going, we cannot use thee if thou wert from the other time. Yeah, no, no, he's no, no, right. going to do that. But I mean, you know, they keep their own beehives. They've got the biocontrol plants. So every bit of it, if he didn't have access to, a technological component. If his ancestors had not had it in 1699, he doesn't want it now. And he's built a very nice niche business selling that family branded, that Bradford branded produce to fancy restaurants in Columbia mm-hmm. and Charleston and Atlanta. Now, right. He can't export that model everywhere, nor does he want to. That's his piece. That's his piece. 
you know, we got another episode with uh, an urban farm, urban container farm in downtown St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, where they're taking old shipping containers, something that people 20 years ago started looking at and going, man, these things are piling up everywhere. What are we, <laughs> what are we going to do with these old shipping containers? You know, and where we saw garbage, they saw farms. Yeah. And now they're doing, they're doing greens. They're doing, you know, lettuces and, uh, salad stuff and microgreens, uh, in, they're growing in the, in the refurbished shipping containers on a one third acre lot in downtown St. Petersburg. They're producing 45 acres worth of conventional produce. Yeah. And it's the same company is power, uh, partnered up with a, a retailer. And it, it's not just here. This is happening everywhere. They're putting those units on site at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're when you're going in and you're buying your lettuce for your salad that night, it was grown 30 feet away. And it walked through the door of the store 20 minutes before you picked it up and took it home. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's all of this. And it's a combination of all these things tacked together. And we're going to continue to see this patchwork quilt emerge and we're going to yeah, see we're going to see new entrants and we're going to see rooftop farming and people like our our firefighter our firefighter you mentioned earlier the mushroom farmer who just on a whim said i'm going to see if i can grow some mushrooms and now he's got a thriving industry out of his home growing gourmet rush mushrooms mm -hmm. so i think there's room for everybody at the park and well, again, <laughs> population is doubling people people got to eat no matter what else happens people got to eat yeah. I agree. Well, that's what the beauty of your show, right? Where the food comes from is the fact that they, you have an opportunity to get into the deep dive into some of these issues and present them. I think, you know, from a very open perspective of like, let's talk about what this is. Right. And I think that's so important. Right. And I think to a point we talked about media early, right. We're not be, you're, you're talking with people, not at people. And I think that's a yeah. big, big difference. And I think that's what wins the day. And I think that's what we need to do in order, in my opinion, to keep propelling these, you know, the positivity we need to be bringing into, you know, food and farming. We need to keep uplifting these guys because without them, I mean, these guys are the true champions in the backbone of this country. And I think we need to uphold them and, and hold them in such high esteem. So I love the fact that you've got this platform and you're sharing these stories. It's wonderful. I appreciate well, it. Thank you for hundred percent. And that's, and that, you know, I had somebody asked me, uh, I actually did a radio interview in North Carolina a couple of days ago and a guy had seen a presentation that, that I did. It was a big party. The North Carolina sweet potato commission had for us preview party, watch party. And, uh, you know, during, during my talking, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think I, I don't write speeches or things like that. I just go out and open my mouth and see what happens. And the, and the, the radio guy, the guy who was interviewing me, he was like, he was like, it was amazing to me at the preview party with all the people in the room he said it's your show and you're walking around your name's on it he said but at every turn you pivoted and shined the light on the farmers and gave the credit to the farmers and gave credit yeah. to the growers so i don't grow anything i'm not you, you know it's not uh, we were meeting with a marketing agency and somebody said who's the star of the show and i'm like huh what <laughs> what do you mean what do you mean Who's the star of the show? It was, it's not Seinfeld. I've already told you that. It's who's the star? The farmers are the star. It's the star. The yeah. the star. And then somebody said, he's the host. They're the star. I'm like, that's it. That's it. Exactly. So, I mean, I'm just taking people with me 
on my journeys, I've, I've been a wanderer, something about being a PK who moves every two or three years. It just gets in you. There's nothing I like more than waking up someplace and going to sleep someplace else. Yeah. Uh, and seeing something new and fascinating along the way and then to have a chance to share it with people is, is, is just extraordinary. And for it to be these stories that mean so much and that resonate with us all, again, as you've been saying all along, food is, food is so personal. It's mm -hmm. not just, it's not just sustenance. It's not just nutrition. It's, it, it it's everything, you know, it's mm -hmm. how we bond. It's how we survive. It's part of our joy in life. Oh my gosh, that's delicious. Oh, have you ever had a fresh orange right off the tree? You know, have you ever broken a watermelon in the field and just sat down and scooped it up with both hands and let it run down your, your arms? Yeah. So it's a pretty neat experience. Awesome. Yeah, it really is. I it love really it. Is. What a great, what a great wrap up. What a great conversation. I mean, this has been a blast. It really has. Yeah. I mean, I have I, no I idea how long we've been going. They might, uh, they might pull us I, I off the air at some point. Yeah, I, 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 we get the platform for this. I could do far better to get the platform. Trust me. Yeah. No, anybody, I, anybody who's still listening, send us an email and you'll you'll get a prize. We'll figure out what it is. Yeah, no, they're still <laughs> no, they're still listening. Yeah, I don't even know. I, you know, I, I I look at it this way. We still I still got battery power on the cameras. The lights there have you go. The, 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 yeah, we're still good. The light, you know, we're we're rolling. We're we're, we're fine. Rolling. We're, We're fine. No, but but really a ton of fun. And I want to switch gears a little bit and have a little fun with yeah, you. I yeah, throw yeah. a couple throw a couple different questions at you. Sure. All right. Because I think I, I'm curious to know. On a scale of one to ten, how strict were your parents? Uh mom eleven, dad one. Oh, okay, hundred percent. So how about how about you though? How about you on a scale with your kids? Um they always knew what they were supposed to do and how they were supposed to do it and when they were supposed to do it. And almost all the time they did. So fortunately it very rarely came up. Uh, I, love it. I, I, I don't, I don't know why I've thought, I've thought many, many times I'm really blessed, but I, I never, none of our kids ever even got maybe a swat on the bottom when they're still wearing diapers and walking towards the fireplace. And you're like, no, you can't go in yeah. the fireplace. That's good life lesson there. But other what, what than you, that, you know, the needs for discipline were just very, very rare. We, I love it. We've been very blessed. Yeah, me too. Uh, we've we've know, been very fortunate. We've been very, our, our kids have been pretty much trouble free. So what, what personality, <laughs> what personality trait, what personality trait got you in the most trouble? Oh, my smart mouth. <laughs> <laughs> don't have to enough said enough said I love, I love to make people laugh and sometimes sometimes that might be at an inappropriate time and sometimes yeah. it might just put somebody's button the wrong way but yeah but hands hands down my oh, yeah, well, I gotta go with you there I, I gotta say that's I'm not sure <laughs> I'm not sure what my parents would say the top three are but I'm pretty sure that's got to be one Two or three, probably more like one and two. <laughs> right. If I was guessing, what is anybody ever asking? You know, when I was doing my work in Diamond, is anybody uh, ever accused you of being uh, Jimmy Carter's son? Oh man, for the first, especially in print, Todd. Think yeah, about it. I know. Back in the day, they didn't have your picture, but pictures in the newspaper was a luxury. A color picture in a newspaper that was uh, you would never even think of such. So, yeah, in some places. Uh, especially when I started spreading out and getting into bigger papers and bigger publications um, and magazines, there were some who would run a 
disclaimer at the end of every article going, you know, Jim Carter is not, is not the <laughs> son of former President James Earl Carter. He is a writer <laughs> from Atlanta, Georgia. For that yeah, reason. And I mean, I played around with my byline for 100 years. I was kind of like, well, you know, everywhere. Everywhere I go, people's like Chip Carter, and you do all the work, and that guy get all the credit. So I was Chip C. Carter and C. Baxter Carter, and all of this combination of things that just didn't work. And I was just trying, and I lived in Georgia at the time, so it was I know. even worse. It was yeah. even worse. Well, so then, you know, uh, little, little VIP action, though. You walk up the front line, you want to get into a restaurant, so it's like, hey, never happens presence. because then you yeah. get there and you're not that Chip Carter, and that. That doesn't work out well for you. <laughs> that that, uh, would, be a, that yeah. would be a drawback. Yeah, Plus, bad. I think he's like 90. <laughs> the president <laughs> is, but I think his son is not quite that old. Uh, yeah. But it was it was real funny when starting my whole career that way and living in the shadow of that name, I moved to Tampa about 20 years ago. And I was like, you know, one cool thing is once I get to Tampa, at least nobody's going to confuse me. There won't be any. You know, I get here literally, Todd, the first night I'm here, we get moved in, I turn the news on, they come in, and now here's Chip Carter with Fox Sports. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> and he was on the air until about four or five years ago. So at that point, I, I just it. gave up and I said, I don't care. I, I, just, I, don't, I don't care. I'm, I'm who I am, and y'all can figure out, people can figure it out for themselves. Hello. Yeah. One. I, I got one final question before we wrap yeah. up our time. You know, you've you've had an amazing career. You've done a lot of things for a long time. You know, ten plus years. You're out. You're telling stories. You're meeting people. You know, I know to what you just said earlier. You're you're a guy that would have no problem plopping on somebody's sofa. Um, you know, to hang out and have a great. You know, get to know people and part of your experience. And I think spend the night there. <laughs> yeah, right. But I think that's really a powerful thing. And it says a lot about you too, right? That that you know, you you go in with such an open heart. When you do these things, and you and you see, like I told you earlier, you wear it on your sleeve when you do your show. It's not hard. It's not hard to see what I believe is the true you out there when you're talking. So, uh, I guess my final question is: is that you know, if you, if you you've met these folks that are out making a difference with our food, what do you think is the most common similarity that you see out there with folks in our world? Yeah, a a true love of their fellow man. And a true love of humanity. Uh, in in the Christian faith, it would be attributed to Christian characteristics. In the larger world, it's just good people. And it, I just, yeah. it, it's hard. I get goosebumps, and I'm I'm literally getting them right now, just thinking about these people. And there's only one reason they do it, and that's because they genuinely love other people. And they genuinely want to help. Now, there's a lot of them who would sit there and go, I won't give you a nickel for so on, so on, such. But they do. They do. Yeah. You do something else. This works too hard. Very rewarding when it's done right. And it's very it. rewarding on a lot of levels. But I think that's it. I think this is the most loving, giving, caring industry in the world. And there's nothing that I would be that I'm happy that uh, there's nothing else I could be part of that would make me any happier or prouder than to represent these people and to take some of these small town stories and shine some light on really probably the most heroic sector of Americans that we have. 
Well, that is a heck of a good place to wrap this up. As I say, we'll drop a sharpie right there on that one. That is pretty sharp. Ladies and gentlemen, where the food comes from, uh, RFD TV, Thursday nights, 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 on the Pacific. You know, once you get it hooked up, and then again, i got to throw a little plug, a little Molly P. I'm just saying, a little touch of Molly P and make your, you know, on top of a little where the food comes from, make the week better. Just saying. Check them out. Chip Carter. Love you, man. If you're on the West Coast, it will come on again at 1030. So you got 630 and 1030. You need to start a little earlier. Step not, in, not in my house. There's no 1030 in my house. Fair enough. No, Set I'm your DVRs, everybody. Set there your you DVRs. Go. Todd, Thanks, thank man. you so this, much. This was an absolute pleasure. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out. I, I, what a great conversation. What a great chat. What a great guy. Um, go check out what he's doing. It's worth your time. It's worth your energy. You know, I talk about it all the time. Inspiration. It's very important. Whether, you know, just saying hello to somebody is a source of inspiration. This show will touch you. This show will make your day better. There'll be a conversation you can sit around and have with your kids uh, that, that you know, share these stories with them and talk it through because they're going to learn something. It's so powerful. And food's very important. We all need to have it. That food, sunshine, water, those are things we all need, right? So lean into it. Thanks for being here. Don't forget to check us out on social media and we'll see everybody soon. Take care.